Let us turn together to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we'll be focusing tonight on verses 31 through the end of the chapter, but we'll read the whole chapter together. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, For it does not submit to God's law, indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... The spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death, The deeds of the body you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation 
has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word abides forever. You may be seated. Let us pray. Grant us, our Father, true consolation in you. We thank you that you are the God of light and life, and that in you we have that comfort of eternal life. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Comfort. Comfort. That's the theme of Heidelberg Catechism one and two, if you see that printed in your outlines there. This is a theme, it's not going to be restricted to only the first two questions, but it 
It's going to ripple through the whole catechism. And you might think to yourself, wait a second. The catechism, it's not some cold document speaking of detached truths from abstract concepts? No, not at all. The catechism, particularly the Heidelberg Catechism, focuses on this warmth and assurance of Christian joy and knowledge of the truth. You see, what the Heidelberg Catechism assumes is that doctrine has everything to do with our lives, just as Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one, answer one, also says, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Notice the catechism has this intensely personal, this life-shaping, existential component. To know the truth is to rejoice in the truth. God wants us to be taught. He is a God who opens himself to be known and to be comforted by that knowledge. Now, we're all looking for comfort in one way or another. One reason I know that comfort's out there, at least the quest for it, is the chicken soup series in many iterations for the teenage soul, for the middle-aged soul, etc. Chicken soup, that soup of comfort for sickness and other circumstances. But we buy Lazy Boy chairs. We hold a warm cup of coffee in our hands. We want the company of family and friends. Why? We want a sense of comfort, of safety, of peace. And yet we know that all these things can only afford us temporary comfort. They are as transient and as frail as we are. So we cannot rest on any of these things for the soul's desire for true consolation and peace. Our deepest plight, as the catechism says, is to is our sin and misery. Notice question two. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The road to exaltation is first to humble yourself before God, to know exactly what your need is. Your lowliness in guilt and in corruption and sin. So then secondly, how I am set free from all my sins and misery, namely by the gospel, the work of Christ. And lastly, third, how I am to thank God for such redemption. This threefold knowledge will be an important component of the whole teaching of the catechism and indeed our reflection of it. Comfort. Now, in the original uh, German uh, 16th century Heidelberg context, it was a wider and deeper meaning then we often associate it with it today. It simply means ease or warmth in some vague sense nowadays. But back then it had the notion of faithfulness, of dependability, 
of a certain degree of truthfulness. And in fact, one way to understand this catechism question is, how can you take courage in life and death? How can you be assured? How can you have this peace that passes all understanding? It's this sort of comfort that the catechism is talking about, because I believe it's a sort of comfort scripture itself speaks of. The word comfort is used often in association with the good news of salvation. In Isaiah chapter 40, after God has announced judgment against Israel for their sins and the exile, what does he say as he promises future restoration to him? Comfort, comfort ye my people, says your God. Jesus, John 14, he says, I am leaving But don't be anxious, don't be troubled, for I am sending you a comforter. So it's not, as Shakespeare would say, that comfort's in heaven and we are on earth, but that God has sent us the spirit of consolation to counsel us, to be our advocate, to comfort us with the good news of Christ. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 1, will speak of God and his Revealing himself, 2 Corinthians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. This gospel comfort, something to depend upon, not just now, but in the moment of our death. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in the inner and outer man, in life and in death, to the very extremity of what we know in this world and even beyond in the age to come as we cross that river. God is our comfort through the waters of death. Why? Because we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, comfort is not some idea or figment that we've concocted in our heads. This is what I really need, so I'm going to project it onto the skies. We can have comfort because there is a comforter. That's the main subject of the main clause in the question and answer here. My faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ has fully paid for all my sins. Christ watches over me. Christ causes all things to work together for my salvation. Christ assures me of eternal life. He is our comforter, and so we can be comforted. That's the point of Romans chapter 8, 31 through 39, and I think it's a very appropriate text to turn to as we consider the teaching of this question and answer. Romans, that thick theological book, if you've ever read it, you sort of come away, what is he saying? You have to Go back over it, over and over. It's so deep and penetrating. And yet, 
as we scale the mountain, as it were, of Romans, chapter 8 is the summit, the very climax of what he is saying. He starts in chapters 1 through 3 explaining the horror, the scandal of our sin, how far short we fall of the glory of God, our deep and desperate plight. Then in chapters 3 through 5, he explains how God answers that problem with justification, with that declaration of righteousness through Christ, giving us a new reputation, a new standing before him. In chapters 6 through 7, he'll speak of the sanctifying work, answering the corruption of our nature and the old life in which we once lived. And then chapter 8, bringing it all together, as it were, and really ending on the note of glorification, the end point of our salvation, to be heirs with God, co-heirs with Christ, to inherit what he has earned for us. And so he says in verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Wait a second. He just said glorified in the past tense. Paul, we're not there yet. You know that. And he responds and says, we are there according to the decree of God because once he speaks it, it's as good as accomplished. Nothing stands in the way. And that's really the theme of Romans 8, 31 through 39. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's an unbreakable, unshakable love because we belong to a God who is inseparable from us in his Son. So let's look at these verses answering how Christ is our comforter in his love. Firstly, Christ, as our faithful comforter, answers our accuser. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? Not simply the immediately prior things he's mentioned, but really to everything that's come before. What shall we say to these things of the greatness of salvation and God's provision in Christ? If God is for us, who can be against us? Really, the starting argument is the final argument. If God is for you, if he is behind, beside, and ahead of you, then who can prevail against you? These are rhetorical questions, of course, that Paul's asking, but they're meant to provoke in us the kind of response that we ought to give. Who can be against us? Even if 10,000 assail us, yet we will not fear, for God is with us. As he says in verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If the measure of love is in what it gives, then God's love is unsurpassable. He gave the greatest gift of all. He did not spare his own son. And so we might say, what else will there be? And he says, everything else. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Christ comes with his benefits, with all that he has attained and earned. And he bestows that on his people by his grace. And then so verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. This is so crucial to remember because Satan will seek to accuse you. He will seek to say, wow, if people knew what you really thought, what you really did, others would not think you're a Christian. How can you call yourself a child of God? You fall short constantly. You don't measure up. How can you come before the tribunal of God and those filthy rags? You will never stand. And with such temptations and deceits, he casts these seeds of doubt in our minds. And he's subtle and sinister about it, isn't he? And remember, in those instances, you can't fight hand-to-hand with him. He's much more powerful than you are. You can't play a mind-to-mind game. He's so much more crafty. No, in those moments, you need to use the sword that will cut through his lies. Don't try to justify yourself in response to his accusations. That will only play into his hands. Instead, you can say, you're right. I am guilty. I am deserving of God's wrath. But notice verse 34. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. You look to Christ, your righteousness, full and free. The one whose obedience is perfect and who is reckoned, applied, counted to your name. He died, but more than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. This great work of Christ from earth to heaven, spanning the grave to glory, all being our possession. So who can condemn us, he says. Justification is that act of God's free grace where he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in Christ, not for any our righteousness, but only for the sake of Christ's righteousness imputed to us and received by faith alone. Justification is a final verdict. And so you can say to the accuser, I am forgiven and I am counted righteous. Nothing you can say will overturn that. He cannot condemn you because the highest court possible, God himself, God the judge, he has justified you. No one else can drag you into court and indict you, charge you with an offense again. God is the one who justifies. The remarkable thing about justification is the gavel has been brought down once, and that's it. God's last day's verdict is brought forward into the present time 
so that we are counted and reputed and reckoned righteous. As he says in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, the perfect tense, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 16, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. This should be comforting, consoling to you and to your conscience. Turn with me to First John, where he strikes this key with strikes this note with an, another key, so to speak, uh, in verse First uh, John chapter three, verse nineteen and twenty. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Satan will seek to accuse us and sometimes your own conscience will want to haunt you and to bring you back into condemnation. But notice, God is greater than our hearts. His word is greater than our word. That's where we need to flee. So much of modern therapeutic language is self-referential. Well, what do you think about your guilt? Or how can you think differently about what you've done? It's me, me, me. And the Christian says, no, it's Christ. He's the one who's rendered the verdict. His word speaks a word greater than my heart. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God as we rest in his loving word. You are justified and you have everything that Christ has earned. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? No one, because Jesus answers our accuser. But secondly, he abides with us in trials. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Christ's love is unshakable. But we have to live by faith in this promise rather than by sight. Because there will be all sorts of things that will come to oppose us, to upset us, to seek to overthrow our assurance in this way. You know, you can't preach a gospel that says, if you become a Christian, everything's going to be easy going. Smooth sailing, you can just coast, everything will be fine. Don't worry about it. No, Christ says, if you believe in me, you must take up your cross. And follow me. And so if we're going to rest and receive Christ as he is offered in the gospel, Paul says, we are going to suffer with him. But with that comes the promise that we will be glorified with him. But there's a temptation here, isn't there? That when these things come against us, that when distress, turmoil, and travail face us straight on, 
we might think, oh no, he's let go of me. I can't survive. But notice what he says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is Christ's love for us, not ours for Christ. It's his faithfulness that matters in the end. Christ has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. Notice, it's not that a hair is not going to fall from your head, but that when it does, the Father willed it. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. And so, whether it's something as light as a hair falling, or something as heavy and bitter and sore as a house burning, or your body ravaged by disease, harm, and pain, Paul says, nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Not tribulation, or distress, or persecution. Not famine, or nakedness, or danger. All of which Paul himself experienced in his life, if you read his epistles closely. And lastly, the sword. In this reference, I think, is what he would eventually face. According to most church historians, he would die by being beheaded in Rome, the very place where the Romans lived, the Roman Christians lived. He had not met them, but he sent this letter ahead of time so that they would be assured and stand in the gospel to live from faith to faith. But nothing would separate him from the love of Christ. And he says nothing will separate us from that same love either. We had a missionary in Haiti named Matt Bob who died in a motorcycle accident. And as he was dying, his wife Shannon held him in her arms and sang to him of God's amazing grace. And as the missionaries were taking them to the hospital, they asked about his condition and she said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How could someone say that? when their husband is dying in their arms, only if she knew this comfort that she belonged to Christ and that he did too. I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, body and soul, in life and in death. Not only to be comforted in these things, but in verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What is loss, defeat to the world, is actually victory, conquest. For those who are Christians, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The world says to the church, you're on a death march. Why go there? Why stand against us? But Paul says, for your sake, we are reckoned and regarded this way. And because of that, 
We are sheep kept in his care by a good shepherd who will bring us through, who will cause all things to work together for our salvation. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Why? Because it brings us closer to him. And it brings us closer to our comfort in life and in death. Jesus answers our accuser. He abides with us in trials. But lastly, he assures us in his love. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not maybe, perhaps, I think this is right, but uh, who knows. I am sure apostolic confidence by the Holy Spirit so you can be sure too. I am convinced. And he lists all these things and you might object, well, you didn't mention this. And he says, nor anything else in all creation, come what may, the worst dangers. You know, we don't live in a safe world, and it's not, and it's an illusion to think so. Tornadoes, earthquakes, warfare, disease, persecution. You can name everything and go and run to earthly solutions as so many do. And yet in that time, where do you flee? Paul says to flee to the arms of God in Christ, because it's in His love that there is perfect safety. There really is to be sheltered from the storms all around us. So whatever happens, and we don't know what will, we know that Christ does give us His Spirit. He assures us of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. If you have this comfort and solace in him, then surely you are to live for his glory. Because your body doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to Christ. Your mind doesn't belong to you. It belongs to him. Your will, your heart, everything about us is now purchased, possessed for the service of God in Christ. We can take great comfort because Christ answers our accuser. He abides with us in trials. He assures us in his love. What a great comfort in life and in death. Let us pray. We thank you, our God, that you have given us such great and precious promises that through your covenant love you have caused us to belong to you and you to be our shield and great reward. And so we pray that we might respond with that gratefulness and joy that you desire of us and that even when we go through various temptations, toils, and snares, that you would reassure us with your presence and this unshakable love that you have. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.